the verses to which I would like us to focus our attention will be Matthew chapter 16, verses 24, 25, and 26. So three verses I'll read. Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to come now and help us to understand what has been written. We pray that Your Word would pierce our hearts and the grace of Christ would come and, and soothe our wounds. Convict us, Father. Break us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. By this, we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 John 2, 5 and 6. Jesus emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7. We put these two verses together, what do we find? Jesus emptied Himself, He made Himself nothing. And if we are joined to Christ, then we are to walk in the same way in which He walked. So in that same vein, with that leading us, the topic to which we turn our attention in, in these verses of Matthew chapter 16, the topic is self-emptying, self-abasement, repudiation of the flesh, abandonment of any cause of self-promotion. In other words, the topic is learning how to say no to yourself. This is, after all, the essence of saving Christian faith. At that first gasp of spiritual air, the newborn infant Christian does not cry out for comfort or for the warmth of its mother's womb. The, the newborn infant Christian first cries out, Not me! Christ. That's, that's what saving faith is. It is looking away from yourself. And for some reason, we tend to think often that we can begin with that, not I but Christ, and then we kind of move away from it to where the normal activity of the Christian life is, well, sort of me and sort of Christ. To remind you of the context of the passage of these verses. In verse 21, Jesus began to very clearly, without question, unequivocally teach His disciples that He must suffer and die. A concept that they did not understand. And then in verses 22 and 23, we saw last week, Peter, having set his mind on the things of man, not on the things of God, steps up to Jesus and says, "...not on my watch." I will defend you. My Messiah will not suffer. And Jesus put him in his place by saying, you get behind me, you get in line, because you do not understand the kingdom ethic, the kingdom way, which is, in essence, victory through suffering. And so we come to verses 24 through 26, where we learn Jesus explains 
the comprehensive necessity of suffering in the kingdom of Christ. This idea of victory through suffering or conquest through apparent defeat is not just for the Messiah. See, it would be very easy for us to say, well, okay, we get it. The Messiah must suffer. I'm glad I don't have to suffer. And that's not the way Jesus taught. That's not what Scripture lays out as the the path or the trajectory of a Christian. Jesus begins to lay out very clearly the comprehensive necessity of suffering. The necessary program for the Christian life is one of defeat, one of suffering, one of loss, one of pain, one of pouring oneself out as a drink offering on the altar of sacrifice to our God. And anything else is unchristian. So, for the next three weeks, we're going to look at these three verses. First, we'll look at the requirement for discipleship. That'll be today. The requirement for discipleship. Next week, we'll look at the reality of discipleship. And then two weeks from now, Lord willing, we'll look at the rhetorical simplicity of discipleship. It's so simple and so basic, so obvious that Jesus teaches in, in a, in, with a rhetorical question. So today we're just going to look at the requirement for discipleship. In other words, if we are to be true disciples of Jesus, real, actual Christians, then what is required? Now I, I want to say from the outset, as I've often said, and, and I believe no preacher can properly preach a text with conviction until that text has first been preached to him. Once he's been convicted, once he's gripped, then he can come and, and hopefully proclaim it with some sort of conviction. So I want you to know that everything that's going to be said today, you will hear for the first time, you will hear probably once, I've already heard it five, six times this week. This has been more than probably any text that I've, that I've preached, more than any topic that I've, I've wrestled with recently has been very convicting to me. And the Holy Spirit's pricked my heart this week many times as I've prepared. I even confessed to Christy. I asked her forgiveness. I said, as I've studied this passage and I begin to look at what Scripture demands of a Christian, I have discovered that I am the most, without question, the most selfish and most self-centered person that I know. And I asked her to forgive me. And I repented. And I would ask you as a congregation, forgive me for my selfishness, my self-centeredness. See, even if perchance I was able to hide that in public, and and you might say, well, I've never known him to be selfish. There's no way that a pastor can lead a flock with that mindset and that selfishness without some sort of trickle-down effect. It bleeds out into the congregation somehow. Maybe just spiritually, but it does. And so I I want to confess that. I want to ask for forgiveness. If you would accept my apology and extend your forgiveness, I want you to display that by doing two things. First, give yourself to the same self-examination intense personal examination over the next three weeks. As as we preach on the Lord's Day, be careful how you hear. Make sure that you're listening intently, that you're not thinking of how it applies to others, but that you're thinking about how it applies to yourself. Throughout the weeks between the Lord's Days, dwell on it. Think on it. Consider what these verses mean and what Jesus requires and engage in serious personal introspection. Do we have a deal? I will, I will receive that as you, you saying, I accept your apology, we forgive you, if you will do that. That being said, let's look at these, or this, this one verse, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, under two main headings. First, the all-inclusive nature of discipleship. And second, the threefold requirement of discipleship. The all-inclusive nature, 
and the threefold requirement, we're discussing discipleship. First, the all-inclusive nature of discipleship. Jesus says, or we read in verse 24, Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Now we have in this, in this verse what's called a conditional statement. Oftentimes phrased, but not always phrased in using an if-then structure. If this happens, then this will happen. If anyone would come after me, then let him... We could, we could insert the word then if we wanted. Then let him. It's conditional. The condition following or the condition must be met in order to fulfill the hypothesis. And when we see the word if, we know that that's a hypothetical statement. What follows the if is the hypothesis. So Jesus, Matthew says, He told His disciples. He's speaking to His disciples. Mark tells us that He has, has a crowd around Him. A crowd has gathered around Him. And as the crowd has gathered... As always, Jesus always had a crowd, so they have followed Him for various reasons. And Jesus takes the time to explain to them the difference between those who are truly His disciples and those who are following Him with no real converting influence on their life. And so He says, if anyone... In other words, out of this crowd of people who are literally following Him, they're, they're really coming after Him for whatever reason. Maybe they desire to hear Him speak. Maybe they want to see a miracle. Our Lord knows that out of this crowd, there are those, many, who would follow Him, who would aspire to be His disciples without any true conviction about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. But there are also, hypothetically speaking, some who would have convictions to follow Him truly. The way we would term this is some of these people are Christians and some of them are not. They're following Jesus for another reason besides Holy Spirit conviction. And rather than saying, okay, uh, not a Christian, not a Christian, not a Christian, all of the non-Christians over here and all of the believers over here, Jesus gathers them all together and teaches them all at the same, at the same time. He gives them all a picture of what is going to be required of the true disciples. And, and the truth that He's about to teach, it will do the separating. It will, it will be the, the, the median around which the true disciples will follow Christ and the false disciples will go about their way. So what he's going to say differentiates between the two groups. Jesus says, if anyone... Now when you read the word anyone, that lets us know that what he's about to say is universal. It is comprehensive. It's all-embracing, all Encompassing. This goes across the board. It concerns anyone and everyone who is described by the hypothesis would come after me. This is important because what Jesus is about to say concerning discipleship is not only to special second tier Christians. The, our history, and maybe you don't know this, if you don't it's good, but our history of lordship salvation and, and lordship theology, for many of us, we, we've heard things like, well, I, I received Jesus as my Savior, but not as my Lord. And when you receive that second blessing and receive Him as Lord, well, then you move up to the next step. You, you actually begin to submit. There's no such thing. You're just a Christian. So he's not speaking to special people. He's not speaking just to the, the traveling evangelist. He's not speaking to only the missionary who's been called to go into the, into the third world. And he's not speaking exclusively to pastors of small churches. He's speaking to everybody. Anyone. He's giving an all-inclusive requirement that dictates the standard of discipleship across the board. True discipleship is not broken down into various levels. The nature of true discipleship 
is the same for everyone who would come after him. So he says, he goes on, if anyone would. When we use the term would, we generally do not use it the way it's, it's actually meant here. The word means to desire or to aspire to or to want. So Jesus is speaking to a crowd. He always had a crowd around him. And it's only honest to assume that these multitudes of people wanted to be his disciples. They wanted to learn from him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. They wanted to participate in or experience a great miracle. They had that. They wanted. That's why they're following him. Many would. Many had the desire. But not all would meet the conditions of this conditional statement. This, what, we're, what we're reading here is the epitome of that old saying, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. That's what we're, what we're seeing happen here. And, and the Lord is clarifying this because of a lack of true, spirit-wrought, spiritually discerning desire. Most of this crowd could probably say, I want to follow Jesus. Look where he's going. We have to go. Pack up the stuff. Come on, kids. We've got to go follow Jesus. But was it for the right reason? Hypothetically speaking, there would be some who truly wanted to. So true discipleship then is characterized by desire. You must want to follow Jesus, but it also must be for the right reasons. If it's for the wrong reasons, then when we come to the, the requirements, then you'll fail. You won't do it. If it's for the right reasons, then although the condition might be difficult, it will pale in comparison to the joy of following Him. So discipleship is all-inclusive. If you are a true disciple, they're not different levels. This goes for anyone. And true discipleship is characterized by desire, but both of these come almost subservient to meeting the requirement He continues, if anyone would come after me. In other words, if anyone wants to come after me. It means literally fall in line behind me in order to follow me where I'm going. Come after me in order to imitate my travels. This would be the language used of a a sheep who would follow the shepherd along that dirt path in a a pasture around the edge of a hill. A sheep would follow the shepherd. Or the, the same language of a soldier following his commanding officer into battle. One commentator said that this is, quote, a phrase proper to students. A disciple is a learner, a student, a pupil. So to come after Christ would be to adopt His methods, to adopt His morals, to adopt His doctrines. It would be, in essence, to enroll in the school of Christ. True discipleship requires movement along the the same paths traveled by Christ. It requires a taking up of His course. His trajectory becomes your trajectory. Oftentimes the steps He has already trodden, you come behind Him and walk in His steps. So looking upon the crowds who had followed Him, many of which who desired to continue following Him, Jesus sets His piercing gaze on those who would truly follow Him. Those whose desire is prompted by the Holy Spirit rather than some earthly craving. In uh, John chapter 8.31 we, we read this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in My word, you are truly My disciples. People who had believed in Him, He said, there's one more requirement. You must abide in My word. So every one of those, without exception, who would truly follow Him must meet the requirement for discipleship. In other words, if you want to come after Him and you want it for the right reasons and you truly desire to follow Him, this is Holy Spirit wrought, then you move to the next stage of examination. You get to then look at the conditions or the requirement that must be met. So I would ask at this point, do you want to go after Christ? 
Do you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus? Is He your master and your teacher? Have you enrolled in the school of Christ? Or do you just sort of like the way the Christian worldview works? You just like the whole, the whole thing that comes along with it. If you would say yes to those questions, I, I do truly want to follow Christ, then, then are your intentions properly seated? Do you just think, well, of course I want to follow Christ. I mean, that's how you get to heaven, right? Again, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And even people will get into their old age and they don't mind dying, but they really don't want to die the way this passage requires of believers. Do you desire to follow Jesus or come after Jesus because it sounds good? Do you desire to come after Jesus because it's really all you know? I mean, you've never read much about what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe or the Mormons believe or the Roman Catholics believe or the Muslims. You really don't know anything but this. And so you just keep on the same course. That's all we've ever known. Or do you follow Jesus or desire to come after Jesus because He's altogether precious to you? Because He is your beloved and you are His. Because being near Him and like Him is your supreme aim. If so, then the requirements that we're about to study, it's going to be difficult, but it, it, it won't hinder you if you truly desire to follow Jesus for the right reasons. But if not, if you just want to follow Jesus because, well, that's how I get to heaven, or because I like the whole persona that comes with being a Christian, it's all I really know, therefore I'm just going to continue in this rather than break the pathway. If that's why, then the requirements that we're about to study will be a hindrance. They will be a stumbling block. You will fight against them. As I describe them, you will already begin to be making excuses in your mind as to why that does not apply to you and your circumstance if you desire to follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. So, heading number two, we come then to the, the, the focus of these three verses, the threefold standard of discipleship. In other words, what, what, what's it going to cost? One standard, but it is threefold. We come the, to the conclusion part of our Lord's conditional statement. He said, if anyone would come after me, that's the hypothesis, we could insert, then, and here's the, the conclusion, let him, when we say let, I'm going to let you do this, that means I'm not going to stand in your way. Don't, don't let me hold you back from doing this, but that's not what this means here. It's, it's one word. It, it, it is an imperative, a command. If anyone would come after me, he must. This is the order from the Lord. He must do the following. Now we would stop and, and answer a, a, an objection or a question. Are, are we going to be studying a type of works-based salvation. Is what he's saying, you must do this in order to be born again? The answer is obviously no. From the outset, no, it can't mean that. See, we're talking about discipleship. We're talking about the practical outworking of having already been justified and born again of the Spirit of God. If that has happened to you, then you will desire to come after Christ. You will desire to meet these requirements. So that desire, evidenced by meeting the conditions, the criteria, is evidence of your conversion. So, so basically, we're getting a, 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 a grid over which we can lay across a person's life and say, yes, your conversion is real. Your salvation is real. You have been born again. Or... Judging by what the Scriptures teach and what Jesus said, it's kind of hard to tell. Or maybe no. So, in other words, if you have been born again, your constant practice, Luke would say, daily, will be characterized by these things. They, they will be your regular method. They will be standard fare for you. So what does the Lord command? Three things. If you would come after Him, you must first deny yourself. Jesus says it in the third person, let Him deny Himself. You must deny yourself. 
To deny is to refuse to recognize or acknowledge. A good example of this is found in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus had told Peter before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you know me. And Peter said, no, I won't. So we read in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 69. Now notice what Peter does as he denies. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. What was Peter doing as he denied? He was refusing to recognize Jesus. Refusing to acknowledge Jesus. He was doing whatever it took, saying whatever needed to be said to avoid any and all apparent connection between himself and Jesus. He was denying Jesus. But Jesus doesn't say... If anyone would come after me, let him deny me. He says, let him deny himself. You must deny yourself. If anyone would come after Jesus, you must deny yourself. In other words, that which Peter displayed around the campfire that night, you must do if you are to be a true disciple of Jesus. But it's not Jesus we're to deny again, it's ourselves. Now, is Jesus saying that we must act like we... We don't know who we are in some sort of Holy Spirit-influenced dementia. No, that's not, that's not the point. The point is, if we are to understand what is meant by self, and we go back to our context. Remember last week in verse 23, Jesus said, Your mind is set on the things of man. Now there's an obvious connection. There, there's sort of a volleying back and forth in this section between the things of man and the things of God. Self and not self. Self and God. So there's a connection being made between what the natural man desires to see and experience. That's what Peter was trying to advance. And what God had ordained and instructed to take place. So the self here, we could put this alongside of the things of man. Although things of man is general, self is personal. Self is that which stands in opposition to the things of God and, the, and how they specifically relate to you. Remember, the natural inclinations of the unregenerate man are always in opposition to the revealed will of God. But how does that fit in your life? How does that apply to you specifically? That is your self. Your self is your physical self, your mental self, your spiritual self. It is you distinguished from everybody else and God. It's just you. We'll look at another text in a minute that, that's going to be helpful in combining these two ideas of the things of man and self. We need to understand how the things of man, all of that that is in opposition to God, relate to ourselves. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, King Solomon set out to do exactly the opposite of what Jesus is requiring here. And he describes his exploits. So what I want to do is read through this, look at the opposite, and then think, I must do the reverse. I must do what Solomon didn't do. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. And, and as I read, I want you to notice the first person pronouns. I, me, myself. What Solomon is doing is the opposite of denying himself. He says, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. 
And I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? See, that was his conclusion. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few weeks of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Now before we unpack this, we're already thinking, yeah, but look how rich Solomon was. What I do is different than Solomon because he had more money to spend on it. And that's not so. In verse 3, we see that Solomon pursued bodily pleasure through consumption. In verses 4 through 6, we see that Solomon accumulated real estate and aesthetic extravagances, things that looked pleasing to his eyes. In verse 7, we see he labored toward the acquisition of a trustworthy workforce. These slaves that were born in your house were much more trustworthy than slaves that you had bought from somewhere else. So he labors towards a trustworthy workforce that would give him physical and mental comfort and ease. I can rest and I can rest assured. In verse 8 we see that he worked toward financial wealth, toward honor from his peers, toward entertainment and toward sexual pleasure. That was Solomon. And when we read these things about pools and gardens and slaves and singers, we, we have trouble relating this to our time. So this is what this might look like in our day. Bodily pleasure through consumption. That's obvious. Gorging oneself on food and drink. Always needing unnecessary dining experiences. When it comes to real estate accumulation, our necessity to have the nicest house on the best street in the best neighborhood, and you say, well, I definitely don't have that. Yeah, but you want it. That's the problem. When it comes to visual stimulation and comfort, we labor to have the best maintained yard, the, the most luxurious matching furniture and home decor so that everywhere I go... My eyes are not hurt. I want to be pleased in every sense of my being with everything I'm looking and everything I'm hearing and everything I'm seeing. Visual stimulation and comfort. Physical and mental comfort. We must have the best of cars. We have to have the highest level of insurance plans. Why? Because we want the comfort of knowing we have the best. Requiring for ourselves name brands and clothing and shoes and, and whatever it might be. We could also throw in here being a lover of sleep, which Scripture condemns and calls that person a sluggard. Physical and mental comfort. I don't want anything in my life that would cause me discomfort. You say, well, my life's definitely not like that. Yeah, but you want it. When it comes to financial ease, we aspire toward wealth. We want, unlike any nation in the world before us and many nations now, we want extra money. We live for the dollar. We let finances dictate the decisions that we make. Well, I want to do this because it will equal this outcome, this bottom dollar. When it comes to entertainment, we have TVs, movies, sound system, electronics, grand experiences, exciting travels, investing time and money into expensive hobbies and interests. When it comes to sexual pleasure, we, we work towards pleasing ourselves when we are with our spouse. Perhaps for some, 
We work towards pleasing ourselves when our spouse is not around, whether mentally with the eyes or physically. Now, are all of these things sinful in and of themselves? Of course, mental lust would be sinful. But are all of them sinful all by themselves? First of all, if you're asking that question, I don't know why you, would, why you need to answer that question as a Christian. We don't live and do things just because, well, it's not sinful in itself. That's not the way a Christian thinks. Well, what's the issue then? Well, Joel Osteen has a book entitled, Your Best Life Now. And we mock it. We laugh at the title because none of us have ever taken the time to actually read it. We mock it and we scoff and we say, well, you got your best life now, that means you're going to hell when you die, man. We, we would say that that book has no place on the shelf of a discerning Christian because of the assumed prosperity theology within its pages. And that's true. But all of that in mockery, and yet for most of us, every waking moment is spent earning, thinking, planning, spending, and laboring to make absolutely sure that this life is comfortable and pleasurable and enjoyable and satisfying and fun. Making sure whatever the cost, discomfort, hardship, that belongs on the other side of the planet, not me. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be comfortable. And I would imagine most of us would be embarrassed if we had to publicly display right now the amount, a comparison of the amount of effort we put this week into satisfying ourselves versus laying up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt. We would be embarrassed. Perhaps the Apostle John said it best when he said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. We hear that when we say, well, I don't, I don't love the things of the world. I mean, I don't kiss them. I don't hug them. I don't take them on dates because we think that's what love means. But that's not love. Love is setting your heart onto something and exalting it in your life. Do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And notice he didn't say owning the desires of the flesh, owning the desires of the eyes. He says just the desires is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, he characterizes the world in three ways. There are the desires of the flesh, the intense desire to please your natural, physical, sensual self. I want to feel good. The desires of the eyes, the intense desire to have everything that looks appealing, even if you don't need it. I don't need it, but it looks good, and it sounds good, and I think it will make me feel good, so i got to have it. The desires of the eyes, and thirdly, the pride of life, prideful or, or personal self-pleasure in all of the things you have accumulated. We look at what we've got. Look what I've got. Look, to the, look, look at the point in life to which I have advanced that I've got these things. As an overarching description, John describes the things of the world as that which is passing away. The things of the world, the things of man, are those things which will pass away. So what is self? Self is your personal attachment to and desire to gratify your lusts for anything and everything that is passing away, that will not be eternal. When you die, it will still be here. See, the problem is, like I said at the beginning, the, the main problem is we can't tell ourselves no. We can't say no. If we do say no, it's because we know that if we say yes, it's going to cause some discomfort later. Well, I want to buy that, but I can't buy it now because if I buy it now, then at the end of the week, I won't be able to pay this bill. It's, it's all about me, you see. It, it's to help me. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's the attitude of a Christian. All of this stuff of the world, it's dead to me. All of this stuff of the world, I'm dead to it. 
I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live every day, I live in faith. Faith. How many of us have actually struggled this week to say, God, I'm just trusting you because I don't see how it could happen. I don't see how we're going to make it. I don't see how we could live. It's not going to work. That's faith. We live by faith and not by sight. So when your natural self says, hey, you deserve it. Look, you've worked hard. You deserve it. You say with Peter, I don't know what you mean. When your natural self says, but it's so pretty. Imagine what it will will look like. You say, I do not know the man. When the natural self says, well, think of what all of your peers will think when they see that you finally got this. You say, I don't know that man. I don't know what you mean. I'm dead to this world. That's what it is to deny yourself. All of that, deny yourself. Now at this point, you might be thinking, and I've thought through this, that we need to be careful. You're saying, well, you've got to be careful, Pastor, in how you, how you phrase this and where you set that particular line because people might be inclined to deny themselves too much to the point of legalism. To that I would say, if anyone, and this is honest, if anyone in this congregation is struggling with denying yourself too much, that you're worried, you're, you're, you're denying yourself so much, then come to me and we'll talk about that. But judging by the cars in the parking lot and the devices in our hand and the clothes on our back and the food in our pantries and all of our lavish plans for the summer, I don't think anyone in this church is struggling to deny themselves too much. I'm just, I'm just pushing. I'm just denying myself so much. I think it's unhealthy. I don't think that's the case. But if it is, then we can talk about that. My fear is that we are a church of predominantly young families who have finally gotten their feet planted, are finally allowed to feel safe and and act on their own. They're, They're out from under authority. And so now we're finally able to just continue gratifying the selfish desires we had when we were teenagers. We just didn't have the means to do it. Now we do, and nobody's telling us what to do, and so we lavish ourselves. I believe that's an accurate analysis of the culture in which we live, and an accurate analysis of of ourselves as fruit of this culture. Not victims, but fruit. And until we as a church learn to grow up and deny ourselves, we will not know what it means to be true disciples of Christ. And if the time ever comes that I believe the Bible describes when we cannot buy and sell and trade because of our stand for Christ, because we haven't been able to deny ourselves up until that point, we won't be able to, to deny ourselves at that point and we will give up Christ so that we can continue to lavish on ourselves all of the things that we must have. So if anyone, all-inclusive, universal, if anyone would go after Jesus, he must first deny himself. It's not just the missionary. We look at and say, and I'm glad God's called you and gifted you to give up all of these things and go overseas because I couldn't do it. It's not just the, the, the evangelist. We look at and we say, well, man, it's... It's good that God has called you and equipped you with the ability to to have such a rigorous schedule where you travel all the time and you're constantly preaching the gospel because He hasn't gifted me. It's not just for the the pastor where we look at and we say, well, I'm glad God's called you to live below the means that we would expect everybody else to live by, but He hasn't called me to that. No, this is everyone. This is every disciple of Christ. Every one of them. Again, we would ask, well, all of those things you named, is it wrong to have them? Is it unlawful? Again, you're asking the wrong questions. I read a, in a book yesterday, a collection of, of various proverbs, not from Scripture, some from Scripture and some not, but one of them said this, if we did not so often indulge ourselves to the extent of what is lawful, we should less frequently do the things that are lawful. In other words, you'd be a lot less likely to fall off the cliff if you just stay back from the edge. And our question is so often, well, how much can I do and still be saved? Oh, wait a second. I believe in the P. I can't lose my salvation. Then, then what's the point? Do whatever you want. Eat and drink. 
for tomorrow we die, right? We can do whatever we want to. No, that's not the way the Christian thinks. The Christian says, I don't want to go to the extent of, of, of lawfulness, go all the way to the boundary because I can. The Christian says, I must deny myself. Whatever that means for each individual Christian, I must deny myself. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Secondly, take up his cross. The cross, of course, we know is an instrument of torture that would lead to death. Get this. It's not jewelry. It's not an icon that helps us focus our minds on God. This is an instrument of torture leading to death designed for the specific purpose of making an open spectacle of the one being punished. To hold them up so that everyone would know this person is condemned. A cross meant suffering. A cross meant estrangement. A cross meant mockery. A cross meant parading in front of everyone the fact that the populace considers you condemned by God for cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's the cross. Jesus says if you are to come after Him, if you are to be His disciple, you must deny yourself of your earthly, worldly pleasures and comforts and take up your cross. To take up the cross was that act there at the very beginning wherein the condemned criminal would hoist that cross upon his shoulders and he would begin to walk the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, outside of the city where he would then be made a public spectacle. Where everybody could watch him. He was paraded in a public procession toward the place of his execution. As James White would say, this is to join the death march. Every Christian is figuratively a martyr. You must die. You must die. Physically, maybe not. Figuratively, you must die. You must die to yourself, die to the world, die to self-comfort, die to this life. Because this is not all there is. I was talking with Christy. It's like we can't, we can't get through our minds If we think about the concept, i got to deny myself, and we think about what it's going to cost and how much longer we might live. Let's say I live to be 90. 60 years of self-denial versus eternity with Christ? It's nothing. But we can't get our minds outside of this moment or this week to look and, and, and lay out the comparison. That's what Jesus does and we'll see in two weeks. He lays out the comparison. Look how obvious it is, and yet we can't see it. So after the true disciple has denied himself and has taken up his cross, then he must follow Jesus. Jesus says, If any man or if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The the phrase follow me is very similar to the phrase he began with, to to come after. It means to follow the leader, to, to walk in the steps of the Savior. Now I want to read some... Scripture references as we look towards the Lord's table. This is the Savior that we are to follow. Jesus said of Himself, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus said in John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. In John 8, 50, Jesus said, Yet I do not seek my own glory. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, 3, For Christ did not please Himself. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, The Lord Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5.25 Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. In Titus chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave Himself up for us to redeem us. That's the path we follow. 
He gave himself. He gave himself. He gave himself up. He gave himself. He didn't please himself. He didn't serve himself. He came to serve others, not to be served. He gave himself over and over and over. He emptied himself. Lord of glory emptied himself, made himself nothing for us. Not so that we could then say, now I'm a Christian and I'm not really going to empty myself or serve anyone but myself. Jesus Christ emptied himself and whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That is what is required of the Christian disciple. Because it's relevant. I've said often, we don't self-identify as Christians. Well, I feel like I'm a Christian now. Why? Well, you know, I prayed that prayer and and I signed this card, and well, sometimes I feel like this, and sometimes, you know, I feel bad when I do this, and so I self-identify as a Christian. We are not disciples by declaration. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we're born again of the Holy Spirit of God, and that rebirth is evidenced. The evidence of every new disciple, the necessary program for every individual who would follow Him is that they do not look to themselves but rather they deny themselves. They take up the instrument of their condemnation, their execution, and they join the death march. So as we look to the Lord's table, I would ask, are you marching or are you indulging? Are you denying yourself or are you gratifying yourself? Does your life look like Solomon's where he said, I set out to do whatever it took to make myself happy? Or does it look like Matthew who was at work and Jesus said, you follow me? And he said, yes, sir. And he left it and he walked. So as the elements are passed for the Lord's Supper, examine yourself. Perhaps confession and repentance are necessary. Deny yourself and run to Christ. Here is where we come and we feed on Christ and we say, I'm sorry, Lord. I receive Your grace. I receive forgiveness. Now help me. Help me to deny myself.